History happened everywhere. A random place, a random time, and a topic pulled from the hat. The challenge to find the fascinating, uncover the unexpected, and share the stories. You're listening to... History happened everywhere. Hello and welcome to History Happened Everywhere. My name is Ryan Weir and I am here in the studio, the HHE studio, with my very good bud. It's Peter Goddard. Greetings, Ryan Weir. I'm happy to be here. Oh, very good. Greetings. It's like an alien. I've been learning alien. Have you? <laughs> yeah, I want to be ready for when they land. Right. Well, that makes sense. The alien overlords. Exactly. I'll, I'll be, I want to be the one to surrender to, the, <laughs> to their leader. <laughs> I feel like this podcast is perhaps like our gift to the aliens when they turn up. We can be like, here's the history of humanity. In random snippets. <laughs> you have to piece it together and figure it out for yourself. It's more entertaining that way. Well, we like, can't give you the answers, aliens. Come, come on. on. You've got to do some <laughs> of the work. Uh, I wanted to talk to you about TikTok. Oh, really? Yeah. So for those people that don't know what TikTok is, right? It's a social media platform, uh, an app that you can download on your phone and you can watch little one minute clips. Some of them are comedy and some of them are dancing and some of them are instructional videos on how to do stuff, unboxing videos and all sorts. Now, the dancing ones are interesting. I've noticed they get millions of hits. We have our own TikTok channel. We do. At HHE Podcast, uh, where we put our little animations on. One minute of pure joy. So I think we do well with our little videos, but we don't get dance level hits. I think I see where this is headed. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) So I was wondering if we could do a little History Happened Everywhere dance, and that could become like a... a, It could become a viral. Almost certainly. Right? I can't imagine how it would I fear what we will end up with is merely footage of me pulling a hamstring. Well, I'm, I, I think we're going to do it. <laughs> a little dancey dance. <laughs> will you do it with your cleavage showing? Uh, I will do it topless if necessary. <laughs> I will drive viewership however I can. Okay. You I'm not it. sure that will drive viewership, but if that's, if that's what you decide has to happen, Ryan, you're the creative director. Okay, good. I'll do it in my flax pants. <laughs> <laughs> Right, you know what this is? Time? It's time. Okay. And you know what time is? Money? (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Oh, do I get money for this? (laughs) No. Uh, Right, so Peter. Ryan. You're following the mighty success of my Greenland episode. You've taken lead on episode 34, but I I can't remember what it was that you're going to be talking about. Maybe there was some mechanism for remembering things. Hmm... How about we hit the Wayback Machine? (gasps) The Wayback Machine? Check it out, it's there. Press the button. Alright, I'm doing it. Desolator, do the desolating, do the desolation. Okay, Peter, are you ready? I'm ready. Okay, and your place is... Drumroll. It's Bulgaria. Ooh, Bulgaria. Nice. Oh, that's that's exciting. Yeah. Okay, and uh, your time? 1910 to 1920. Ooh. Okay, well, that just leaves your subject matter. And the subject is... Writing. Writing. Oh, that's good. Oh, I'm excited. I am excited. I can now confirm I am excited. (laughs) So writing in Bulgaria during 1910 to 1920. Okay. I'll see what I can dig up. Awesome. Okay. So that sounds boring. (laughs) Yes. Well, 
<laughs> Why does it sound boring? It sounds boring because you do not know what's coming your way, my yeah, friend. Yeah, that's this right. Is, I'm about to hit you with more knowledge than you could shake a stick at. Okay. But let's first orient ourselves yeah. in the Republic of Bulgaria. All right. That's an Eastern European country. It's in the Balkan Peninsula, which you may have heard of. I have. Uh, in terms of who's around it, it's got Romania to its north. It's got Serbia and North Macedonia to the west. It's got Greece and Turkey to the south and the Black Sea on the east. So that's its kind of neighborhood. Okay. Uh, it's named The Balkan Peninsula itself is named after the Balkan Mountains. So hmm. the Balkan Mountains are mostly in Bulgaria, actually. So oh, really? it's quite a mountainous kind of country. And actually, the Balkan Peninsula is not technically a peninsula. It's misnamed. Uh, <laughs> and also, unfortunately, the word Balkans has a long history, which we're about to discover, of a lot of fighting between neighbours. And Balkanization has kind of become a word with some quite negative connotations. So the preferred alternative term to the Balkan Peninsula now is just Southeast Europe. Oh, OK. Well, that's straightforward, isn't it? Yeah. So uh, it's an Eastern European country, and I will demonstrate that by playing the national anthem. <laughs> not messing around, this are they? This is not the most Eastern European thing you've ever heard. <laughs> Days. <laughs> this is depressing as hell. I feel like refugees tramping through the snow. Right, it's just so sad. Is it sad because it's been taken and used for those things? Like, when it first came out, was everyone like, oh, this is awesome? Hard to say. Hard to say. I think it's better for you now. Yeah. So there you have it. If I hadn't said you're in Eastern Europe, I think you'd have figured it out by now. Wow, what is it about that area where just everything just sounds so sad? Well, I can promise you, you are about to learn. Okay, right. Uh, this is going to be a long and not necessarily upbeat podcast. Oh, okay. Uh, Bulgaria is approximately 110,000 square kilometres. Okay. It's about 20% of a France. So five Bulgarias to your France. That's quite small. It is quite small. Why did I think it was bigger than that? Um, it does feel like it should be bigger. I don't know why either, mm. because I have a similar sort of sense. Uh, but what's really surprising is there's only 7 million people there. And what's doubly interesting is, in about 20 years ago, there was 9 million people there. It is losing population quite rapidly. Uh, so they need to get jiggy. They do need to do something about the hemorrhaging of people that they seem to be mm. encountering. I think it's because it's one of the poorer European Union countries. Okay. So they've got freedom of movement, so people go elsewhere for their opportunities. Makes sense. I mean, there's lots of mountains there as well, you said, right? It is very mountainous. So if you've got an area that's only one-fifth of France and most of it is mountains, I don't suppose you can fit many people there anyway. Yeah, they do have to squeeze them in. <laughs> You'd um, think all that close proximity, they'd be um, popping out babies. Well, maybe. Maybe. Um, I think the it's it's actually a genuine problem for the place. So mm. hopefully they uh, get busy. get Start having more baby-making activities, yes. Bulgarians. The capital is Sofia. That's a nice name. It is lovely, isn't it? I thought it was Sofia, mm. but it's Sofia, apparently. Sofia, okay. Uh, the currency is the Bulgarian Lev. Oh, not the euro? Uh, no, I don't believe so. The Lev. Uh, let me give you some famous Bulgarians. Please. Uh, in the world of tennis, Grigor Dimitrov. Don't know him. No? Okay, how about in football, Dimitar Berbatov? Yeah, played for Manchester United. Ah, that, okay. Maria Bakalova. She's an actress. She was the young lady who played the daughter in Borat recently. Uh, and a fictional <laughs> character, but I'm going to include him anyway. Victor Crumb, the Harry Potter wizard. He was from Bulgaria. Yeah, that he makes sense. Bulgarian. Yeah. yeah. 
Poor old Victor. Um, their motto is unity makes strength, which will be simultaneously explained, but also revealed to be tremendously ironic in the next hour or so. Say it again. Discuss. Unity makes strength. Do it again in the accent? No. <laughs> <laughs> nice try, though. <laughs> so we're going to scamper through. Normally I would go through a bit of the history from the beginning, but there's really way too much to do today. So okay. what I'm going to do is just, just give you a quick heads up, which is this is a critical period of Bulgarian history. One of the Bulgarians I spoke to said, and I quote, if you had to pick the absolute worst decade in Bulgaria's <laughs> 1300 years of history, 1910 to 1920 is easily the top candidate. Wow. Uh, it's 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 going to be a tough hour, but um, mm. it's it's fascinating. So right. the subject is writing. So I am going to look at the events of this decade through the medium of two really different types of writing, which is poetry and comic books and treaties. Ooh, treaties. treaties. Everyone's favourite reading material. So just to summarise the first couple of thousand years, which I'm going to scamper through in a single sentence, Bulgaria is kind of in the middle of a lot of stuff and mm. consequently is frequently involved in the back and forth of people who want to expand their various empires. Therefore, lots of people coming in, Mongols, Bulgars. Uh, so the problem that you see with a lot of these Central European countries where there's no natural barriers particularly, there's, there's lots of opportunity to go, well, actually, I want that bit of land, so I'm coming in. Yeah. The main point we need to make, though, is from 1393 into the 1900s, Bulgaria is part of the Ottoman Empire. Okay. So that is a very big empire that's basically run out of Turkey. Mm -hmm. It's an Islamic empire. And that is about 500 years. That's 500 years 500 of being years part of somebody else's empire, effectively. Of simtars, those onion-shaped buildings. <laughs> <laughs> I'm trying to think what else Ottoman stuff is. Yeah, I guess shoes that turn up at the end shoes of the Shoes that world. turn up, yeah. There we go. So for 500 years, you're pretty much owned by someone else. And then you're into the 1900s. It's very difficult to identify as a Bulgarian for a couple of reasons. You've got the Turks who are running you effectively, mm -hmm. but also culturally, you've got the Greeks. So the things that are considered advanced and intelligent and good tend to be Greek, you know, all the philosophy and the culture. Same as you get in British public schools today. Greek classical culture yeah. is sort of looked upon as superior to others, other cultures. Yeah, we don't, we don't learn Ottoman. No, we do not. So you've got Ottomans sort of physically and practically running things and culturally greeks dominating things or cool. sort of greek thought anyway but then we enter the 19th century and the end of the 18th century and we're starting to see this emerging idea of, of bulgarianness hmm. it's a period known as the bulgarian renaissance and uh this is appropriately enough for me has started with a book okay uh, this is a book written in 1762 called the historia slava noble bulgarska <laughs> <laughs> I knew this was going to be I bet you hard. practiced this I as well. I really did. Yeah. <laughs> Historia, did you write it out phonetically? It's, it's, well, it's quite phonetic. It's just oh. so long. I should have broken it up is what yeah, I should have done. That's what I do. <laughs> the Historia Slavia no Bulgarskaya. That translates as Slavonic Bulgarian history. Okay. So this is by a guy called St. Pisus of Hillandar. And awesome he's quite name. deliberately setting out to create a history for Bulgaria. He's trying to make this sense of Bulgarianness. He says, the Serbs and the Greeks have twitted us many times because we did not have our own history. So twitted us? Twitted us, you know, made us look foolish. Oh, never heard that. So he writes the history for himself. Like, well, someone's got to do it. Hmm. And this is important enough in Bulgarian development that actually the, some text from it appears on the back of the two Lev note today. Oh, no way. So this is really a, a, a foundation point in Bulgarian culture. Like the Declaration of Independence in America. Yeah, exactly. Or the Magna Carta in the UK. Absolutely. Or... I want to see how many of these you can do. <laughs> 
So this book basically articulates a sense of culture and a people. And he actually says, (laughs) this is a translation, obviously. Oh, you unwise moron. Why are you ashamed to call yourself a Bulgarian? And why don't you read and speak in your native language? Weren't Bulgarians powerful and glorious once? Wow. You can hear his voice in that. You can, can't you? I mean, the guy's not mucking about. He's got a very clear agenda. (laughs) Yeah, it's interesting, though. In writing, like, sometimes you can't hear that. And it just sounds... Official documents don't have the voice of somebody. And yet you can read that and you (laughs) you can tell that's a dude who's been drinking all evening. It's just ranting. And another thing. (laughs) (laughs) I'm going to write this down. It's a blog more than anything. (laughs) Yes, early blog. Early blog. Very foundational. Yeah. So this is the beginning of the Bulgarian Renaissance. It's a big, long thing. I'm not going to talk in depth about it, but basically an emerging sense of we are Bulgaria, we have an identity, and that is a good thing. Sure. So so can I just ask a question about that, absolutely. though? Absolutely. I know you're not going to go into it, but 500 years of Ottoman Empire, that's a lot of influence over your culture. Are they at that point were just like dismissing all that and going, well, what is, what is a Bulgarian so, if it's not 500 years of... Ottoman influence. So the the way the Ottoman Empire particularly seems to work was that it wasn't, I'm going to take your country and absorb it. It was much more, I'm going to own your country, suck it dry, and you will be you, we will rule you and take what we need from you. Okay. So it didn't have that massive cultural influence that you would expect from a kind of colonization approach. Right. It was so much fi- more of a give us all your stuff. Situation. So there's no 500 years of, right, you're wearing curly shoes and carrying simtars. No. And okay. there, there's a couple of other factors at play, actually, which is that the the Turks who were there tended to stay in the lowlands and the populated areas, and a lot of it was mountain. Mm. So these all these mountainous people were pretty much uninterfered with because okay. they didn't have a great deal, and it wasn't in the mountains, right? Yeah. So that's why there's a, an empire that isn't particularly interested in imposing itself culturally, and also a geography that doesn't really welcome people quite as much as you might uh, hope. Okay. So we have the Bulgarian Renaissance. Bulgarians are going, oh, Bulgaria is good. You start to get uh, kind of literature being written. You start to get a growing sense of identity. And that means it is now time for a poem. This is a poem by a guy called Christo Botev, and right. it's called The Hanging of Vasil Levski, a revolutionary who believed in an independent Bulgaria from the Ottoman rule. And it was published in 1876. Oh, you, my mother, my native land, why is your cry so sad and heartrending? And you, O raven, accursed bird, on whose grave croak you of ill impending? Ah, I know you weep, my mother, because you're a slave in bondage lying. You weep because your sacred voice is a helpless voice in a desert crying. Weep on, weep on near Sofia town, a ghastly gallows I have seen standing, and your own son, Bulgaria, there with dreadful force is hanging. The raven gives its grim hoarse croak, dogs yelp, wolves howl, the sky is bleak. Old men in prayers their god invoke, women shed tears, the children shriek. The winter sings its evil song, squalls chase the thistles in the plain. The cold and frost and hopeless tears ring and twist your heart with pain. Two things. Yes. Uh, Firstly, well done, that was really well read. (laughs) Thank you. (laughs) Um, Secondly... These Bulgarians, 
It's not a cheery bunch. Yeah. And this is a theme and a tone that will continue. Okay. You, will, you will find bleakness is, is a real feature of the, the literature. Certainly. It's more than bleakness. This is an anger I'm picking up on, right? There's, there's anger because you've been enslaved for so long. So what was it? You weep my mother because you're a slave in bondage line. The themes yeah. of being oppressed, enslaved really, really are very common in this era. Wow. But also there's a sense of helplessness. There's not, oh, and it won't last long and everything's going to be okay. Mm. It's like we're really being hammered here. And so, yeah, Vasilevsky was a revolutionary who was captured and killed by the Ottomans and hanged. Was he killed for writing poetry? Uh, no, he was killed for being a revolutionary more than that makes writing sense. poetry. Although, I guess, uh, maybe the poetry didn't help. I don't know if they brought yeah. it out in mitigation. <laughs> who knows? <laughs> So okay. let's talk about this guy a little bit more, Christo Brotev. He was a poet. He put his money where his mouth was, though. He was a revolutionary and a teacher. Uh, he was exiled to Romania for speaking against the Ottomans. He edited revolutionary newspapers, which I would argue a bit conveniently also published his poems. <laughs> okay. So in 1876, he takes part in the thing called the April Uprising. So this is a revolt in Bulgaria against Ottoman rule. So this, this isn't just, let's have a chat. They yeah. actually revolt. It's astonishing, isn't it? I always I forget that the Ottomans were going right up to 18... Whatever. Absolutely crazy recently. You think of them as this ancient mm. history thing. Yeah, yeah. They're, they're, they're really not. So this April Revolution broke out in on the 20th of April, 1876. Mm-hmm. They were not well-equipped revolutionaries. They have, <laughs> including in their arms, a number of cannons made of wood. Oh. Cherry cannons, because they were made of cherry wood, and there's these wooden cannons with kind of bands of iron round. Not very reliable, not very good, and with a tendency to explode. So being armed with those, they lose really quite badly. They're brutally suppressed by the Ottomans, who use the regular army and the thing called bashi bazooks, which are irregular troops. Mm. So less disciplined, more aggressive, more dangerous, really, or more scary. Bulgarians are massacred, 15,000 are massacred in a place called near Plovdiv. Also towns Perustica and Batak, populations massacred, shooting dead of us. Another guy, a revolutionary poet called Christo Botev. He dies in the April Revolution. Yeah, I know. So he was a poet and a revolutionary, and he, he wrote the poem about it, but he lived it as well. So basically, as a revolution, it was a complete failure. But the Ottoman cruelty triggered outrage in the great powers. So now we have to have a little diversion because okay. I'm suspecting your next question is, who are the great powers? Yeah. Right. So just a real short I bit about Spider-Man. With great powers come yeah. great responsibility. <laughs> well, right. they would probably agree with you because the great powers were in, in this period. So the end of the 19th century, the great powers were basically, well, they were France, Russia, Austria, Hungary, Germany, Britain and the Ottomans. So the big okay. empires in Europe. And they are basically countries that are all the powerful countries, whereas everyone else is pretty much a minnow in the pond with these six sharks. And they, at this time, have enmeshed Europe, really, in all these different treaties and alliances to maintain this quite ba- fragile balance of power. So they all want different things, and they all want to both obtain bits of land that they want, but also prevent their foes from mm-hmm. obtaining bits of land that they want. So not only are they having treaties with each other, they're also, in a sort of similar way to the Cold War, using these smaller countries as proxies for their own self-interest. Okay. So pretty much nothing in this period happens without the approval of the great powers. And if you have a war, you will show up at the treaty table and you will find that Britain are there, France are there, Germany are there, Mm. Austria, Hungary are there, the Ottomans are there, and Russia are there, even if none of them were involved in your war, because they're all interested in the outcome. Who gets the port? Who gets the river? Who gets the Mm. really fertile grain area? 
So that's a, that's a, uh, that's a fly on the wall moment, right? Yeah, absolutely. This is the, the only thing I could liken it to is a kind of set of mafia families yeah. with just everyone else is just the people <laughs> and they're going, no, I didn't approve this. This can't happen. Uh, and this is going to be super significant for the Bulgarian experience. Mm. And it starts by being super significant because, because Russia really take exception to the Ottoman suppression of the Bulgarian uprising. Why? Because they quite like the the, the Ottoman Empire is a big empire. The mm. more they go up towards Russia, the more they are sort of approaching and yep. threatening. And a nice bit of independent Bulgaria in the middle would create a nice buffer between them okay. and the Ottomans. So they're like, well, we quite like the idea of a, the Bulgaria. The brutality itself was a problem for a lot of people. Gladstone, I think it was in the UK, wrote a paper saying this this was totally unacceptable. So there was a partly a moral aspect, mm -hmm. but obviously it was also a self-interested aspect. So they're like, well, actually, the other thing that was happening was the Ottomans are kind of getting weaker and weaker. They've had 500 years, but they're getting weaker. So there's an opportunity here. Let's let's do something. And so what the Russians do is attack the Ottomans. Oh, wow. OK. They declare war on the Ottoman Empire. They make substantial inroads into the Ottoman territory, and they are supported by 12,000 Bulgarian volunteers with this failed April Revolution on their mind. They're like, that makes oh, sense. No, I still want to fight these guys, but this time we've got a load of Russians with us. This is likely to go better. Okay. It does go a lot better, mm. unsurprisingly, perhaps. But do, wait, does, do the other powers agree then and approve the Russian move into the Ottomans? Well, what happened was... The, Were the Ottomans not at the table when they disagreed this? Well, Russia invaded, they pushed forwards, and then actually, exactly as you say, the great powers then go, whoa, 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 whoa stop. Right. And they do, oh. because that's how this, yeah, this yeah, period yeah. works. So the Ottomans offer a truce. They go, well, we've lost, but they, the Russians could probably have gone a lot further, but then you've got a really strong Russia and so the yeah. other great powers don't want that. So they say, stop, that's enough. Let's mm. have a truce. So Russia and the Ottomans agree a really important treaty. This is in many ways the sort of the, the start of everything. And this is the Treaty of San Stefano. Hey, Pete. Hey, Ryan. Look, I'm, I'm trying to be good. Okay. Why? Well, because you said there was going to be treaties. But there are treaties. We've, we've been talking about treaties. Yeah, 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 I know. But, but when are we going to stop talking about treaties and start having treaties? I'm not with you. Are we waiting for Sam Stefano? What, what are you talking about? The treaties. Yeah? You said Sam Stefano's got a treaty. And now I'm wondering when I'm going to get a treaty. I mean, I don't know who this guy is, but why has he got a treaty and I don't? Well, we're just about to talk about it. Yeah, 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 but we've been talking about it for ages and I want my treaties. Oh, I see what you're saying. You mean like a chocolate bar? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Or a nice bit of fudge? Yeah, or a bag of crisps. I see. Icy cream, yeah. A nice cherry pie, perhaps? Yeah, or, or a cake. With icing? Yeah, and cream. And a delicious cherry on top? Yeah! You're an idiot. So this is a massive thing for Bulgarians. This is the thing that kept coming up when I was talking to Bulgarians, talking about San Stefano. It is still on their mind to this day, even though it was a hundred and some years ago. Oh. So the main thing it did was give Bulgaria everything it wanted, pretty much. They established an autonomous, self-governing principality of Bulgaria with basically a Christian government, a right to keep an army. So technically part of the Ottoman Empire still, but to all intents and purposes, it's an independent nation. Okay. 
Uh, and that gives Bulgaria an absolute ton of land all the way to the Black Sea on the east, loads of the areas known as Thrace and Macedonia to the mm-hmm. south of where Bulgaria is today. So really pushing down into what is was previously Ottoman territory. So that is the Bulgaria that Bulgaria always wanted to be. There's ethnic Bulgarians in all of those areas. It's big. It's got a lot of good good bits of land mm. and port and whatnot. Yeah. So they have everything. This Treaty of San Stefano, San Stefano gives them everything they want. They're like, this is great. All right. Well, great. Then the great powers open the Treaty of San Stefano and go, oh, I don't like this. Austria-Hungary in particularly does not want a massive power in the Balkans. And this big Bulgaria would be exactly that. How big would this Bulgaria have been roughly um, compared to what it is today? Probably, I'm, I'm speculating a bit, but probably a third, a half, double. I mean, it's it's okay. big. It's whole country's worth, really. Okay. Um, so the great powers go, no. You can't have the Treaty of San Stefano. We don't like it. So in July in 1878, they have a Congress of Berlin where the great powers, who, Mm. let's not forget, were not involved in this war outside of the (laughs) Ottomans and the Russians, but they still come to the table. They have a conference. I say everyone comes to the table. Bulgaria was not invited to the table. Not one of the great powers. suppose technically they also didn't exist yet. (laughs) Well, yeah. Yeah. But they have a diplomatic conference to, quote, reorganize the states in the Balkan Peninsula. So they just sit around and go, right, what do we want? Okay. And so the Treaty of Berlin is signed. And this created an equity in the region. It's slightly different to San Stefano. So they managed to create a situation that absolutely everybody was unhappy with. So what happened was the Ottomans basically lost all of their Thrace and Macedonian territories and they were just confirmed weak and, and not really much use. The Russians were a bit peed off because it took away all, a lot of the land that they thought they had gained. Serbia and Greece, who were also involved in winning things in the San Stefano Treaty, didn't get what they wanted. But the main thing here is for Bulgaria. So you, you started in under San Stefano with this massive Bulgaria, nice port here, lots of nice land all over, over the place. But they went, no, we're not having that. They basically cut it in half with Bulgaria and a, a land they called Eastern Rumelia. Rumelia. Rumelia, yeah. Okay. It might be Rumelia, I'm not sure. So that's so suddenly your big country has been cut in half. But then they also just took Macedonia off completely and gave it back to the Ottomans. Oh. So now you've got Bulgaria was really shrunk down to about a third of its size. And they go, no, no, that's Bulgaria. So for a brief moment, they're like, we've got the Bulgaria we always dreamed of. And mm. then five it's minutes later, the great powers go, no, you can have a third of that. Enjoy your mountains. Wow. So uh, what does all this get mean? over this idea of them all sitting around in like one evening in some castle somewhere? And that's exactly what it was. They'd sit around, draw lines on maps, go, do you want that bit? Yeah, I like that bit. Okay, you can have Amazing. that bit. What do you, how about, what would you want? What are you going to give me? I'll give you this bit. Right. And all the like talk bind each other's back that's exciting it is exciting stuff and it's also really complicated stuff there's all these interrelated rivalries and mm. why am i doing this thing it's actually because i really want this guy to be stronger so we can offset that guy over there who i don't like very much mm. uh, and it's really complicated so i've drafted in a little bit of help from a chap called eric halsey uh, okay. he has a podcast called the bulgarian history podcast no way uh, right. which i thought was quite handy excellent <laughs> welcome to the Bulgarian History Podcast. Uh, it's a super in-depth podcast. He's a really nice guy and he volunteered to, to talk to me and help me understand all of the significance of some of this stuff. Great. So yeah, his, his podcast is on bghistorypodcast.com and he's going to help us understand this whole period. So first of all, we're going to understand what the significance then of this San Stefano, then Berlin Treaties experience was for Bulgaria. To call this a roller coaster is an understatement, because even before San Stefano, if you imagine this, right, Bulgaria had had a number of aborted revolutionary attempts uh, going for years and years or growing frustration against the Ottomans. Then you have the April uprising, fairly large uprising that is 
brutally crushed, leading to horrible repression by irregular soldiers sort of running amok. It's terrible. And then shortly after this, yeah, you've got the Russo-Turkish War. All these Bulgarians, again, kind of rise up and help fight. And Bulgaria is finally liberated. And, and it seems like, yes, they got everything they wanted. So it's not even just getting everything you wanted after almost 500 years of Ottoman rule, but coming directly out, you know, very, very shortly after this failed uprising and all these kind of uh, subsequent repressions and things. And then, yeah, it seems like you have everything. And it's just this horrible irony because San Sabana was kind of a dumb idea because anyone who knew anything about great power politics at the time, which the diplomats who negotiated certainly should have, would have known that this was never going to happen, like that the great powers would have never accepted San Stefano. And then it was all taken away. And, you know, anyone who's got kids, right, you know, if you give a kid an ice cream cone and then take it away, he's like, they're, they're much more upset than if they had never gotten it in the first place. And that is the irony of San Stefano. It's like, it was never going to happen. The great powers were, were never going to allow it, but it seemed real for a time and then was taken away. And as a result, Bulgaria was born with this ingrained sense of loss, an ingrained sense of injustice, and an ingrained sense of uh, mission, right? That you know, from the moment Bulgaria became kind of semi-independent in 1879, it already had this clear political mission. Like, this is our number one goal, is to, to unite San Stefano Bulgaria. And so it's like everything after that is kind of dictated by that discrepancy between San Stefano, Bulgaria, and Bulgaria after the Treaty of Berlin. Wow. Okay. He's been really helpful at making things very clear to me. His <laughs> Bulgarian accent is excellent. <laughs> yes, he may be an American. He does live in Sofia, though. Uh, he has a Bulgarian wife. I checked his credentials. Oh, right. Okay, good. <laughs> um, so here we are. We've done the Treaty of Berlin. It's a disappointing start, but there is rumblings of and a sight of an independent Bulgaria. It, there is, in fact, a Bulgarian practice, if not in law. And in this period of pragmatic independence, it's uh, quite a period of change for Bulgaria. They go into a period of modernization. They decide, right, well, we've escaped the Ottoman rule. We're going to transform from a poor agricultural state into a modern European country. So the capital, Sofia, grows by 600% from 1878 to 1912. 600%? 600%, 20,000 to 120,000. Wow. Education becomes really important. The illiteracy basically vanishes by the turn of the century. The University of Sofia is opened. Lots of young Bulgarians are studying abroad. So we've got this kind of this um, cool. modernizing period. And it's and this finds its way into the nation's poetry as well. Okay. So between 1892 and 1907, mm -hmm. the, there's a group called Mizal. Uh, it's, it translates as thought, I think, Mizal. Uh, it's also a publication called Mizal. But it's, it's one of those things where there's a, a, a magazine and a group kind of identified in the same way. Okay. And it's kind of a cultural, literary intelligentsia, these Mizal group. And they are adopting more European ideas. And the poetry that's coming out at this time is a bit more personal, less of the my motherland stuff and more right. of the me personally kind of stuff. Is that representative of the time period as well, do you think? Well, I think I, I wouldn't go that far. I have selected poems that I think encapsulate, particularly encapsulate time periods. I wouldn't necessarily say that all of the poetry was going that way. I was just wondering if that was the fashion and the trend of this time period. Well, certainly modernism... Uh, a little early for modernism, pre-modernism, I suppose you'd call it, is something that's happening in Europe. So, yeah, I think there is a there is definitely a trend that way. Okay. But you haven't lost that nationalist, as we just discussed. That nationalist thing is still there. Yeah. But at the moment, we've got a bit more personal, a bit more. So there's the this guy that we're about to 
talk about is a guy called Peo Yavorov. He was a symbolist poet, so a bit more artsy and a bit less martial, I suppose you might it's, say. It's an emotional roller coaster, isn't it? Yeah, it's a very mixed period, I guess you could say, because yeah, lot, lots of things are looking up, a lot of developments occurring, but mm. you still haven't got that thing you wanted, which was this sense of a fuller Bulgaria that San Stefano represents. So Peo Yavorov has a wife uh, called Laura, L-O-R-A, Laura, and uh, he, he writes a poem called To Laura, but this is after she dies because it wouldn't be a Bulgarian poem without an absolute helping of tragedy. <laughs> right, okay. Uh, so this is what happened to Yavorov's wife. <laughs> they have dinner with a couple uh, and Yavorov was getting a little bit too much attention from the friend's wife. <laughs> the couple have a fight. Laura was a very fiery character. <laughs> After this fight, Laura enters his study. She shoots herself in the heart with a gun. Right. Yavorov runs in. He's so shocked, he takes the gun and he shoots himself in the head. Oh, my God. And he misses. The bullet goes through his temporal bone. He goes blind because of this bullet, but he doesn't die. Oh, it was the wrong angle. He then has to deal with the rumours that he killed his wife. There, are, there is a trial, I think it's a civil trial from the family uh, that basically say, we think you killed your wife. Uh, society considered him guilty. Uh, he falls into despair and then he poisons and shoots himself in 1914, age 36. Oh, my Lord. Yeah, this is not an upbeat episode, I'll be honest with you. So strap in. So uh, Yavorov, a symbolist poet, and he wrote this to Laura, to his dead wife. My soul's a sigh, my soul's a dove, because I am a bird of fall. To death is doomed my wounded soul, to death inflicted by a love. My soul's a sigh, my soul's a dove, what's the meaning of today, tomorrow? And here I say, it's hell and sorrow, and in the sorrow love. Mirage is near, the road elsewhere, a wondrous cheerful truth, of naivete and greedy youth, of scorching flesh and spirit light as air. Mirage is near, the road elsewhere, because before me she is shining, shining not realizing whose dove a sighing, she, flesh and spirit light as air. So, firstly, wow. massive thank you to Antoinetta, who is our Bulgarian voice there. Nice. As you rightly pointed out, a beautiful out, voice. Uh, Eric was not very Bulgarian. Antoinetta, <laughs> on the other hand, hugely Bulgarian. Uh, <laughs> and she very kindly went to quite an amount of effort to record these poems for us. No so, way, that's fantastic. Um, that is a genuine Bulgarian voice there, which I thought was appropriate. That's great. Um, but you can see it's a symbolism, so it's it's not as easy to grasp as that other poem. It was a little bit ephemeral, isn't it? Mm -hmm. The meaning isn't obvious. So that's a that's a kind of modernist symbolist uh, experience in terms of the poetry. Yeah, a lot less anger in that one. Yeah, but by no means upbeat. No, no, no. no. <laughs> I say it's hell and sorrow and in the sorrow love. I think that's about as positive as it gets. Mm. <laughs> so we're in 1885. We're modernising Bulgaria. But as I say, nationalism is still a force. Yavorov himself was involved in Macedonian liberation struggle as well. And that's Macedonia, don't forget, to the south of Bulgaria. Right. Bulgaria still wants eastern Romania back, the bit that was split in half, to the east of what is currently Bulgaria. So where is East Romalia now? So it's on the modern map, what is Bulgaria today? Yeah. Pretty much cut that in half and the eastern bit is eastern Romalia and the oh, western see. bit is So it's not sitting in Bulgaria. some other territory, it's still no, within it's next Bulgaria. Door. Right, okay. 
So they want to get it back. And uh, Eastern Romania is played largely by Bulgarians and Bulgarian identifying people. So they have an idea. So they create this group called the Bulgarian, I love this name, the Bulgarian Secret Central Revolutionary Committee. What's those initials spell? Uh, Buskirk. The Buskirk. Ah, you can only say it through gritted teeth. Yeah. So they come up with a plan. On the 18th of September, 1885, Romanian militia take over the governor's residence, the governor of Eastern Romania. Now, as it happens, the governor was a guy called Gavril Krastovich. Mm-hmm. And he was a Bulgarian patriot anyway. So he was like, hey, come in, come guys. In. <laughs> hey, good to see you. Who wants a drink? Yeah. And so he was <laughs> delighted to have these visitors. Uh, the Ottomans, less so. And they probably would have sent some troops, except the Treaty of Berlin stated the Sultan of the Ottoman Empire was only allowed to send troops to Romalia at the request of the Eastern Romalia's governor. That's our man, Gavril Krastovich. So the Ottomans like, so how's it going? Some troops? Any troops? Like, no, no, we're fine here. Good. Don't you worry about us. Okay. So yay. House Basically, party. this is an event that's marked even today by, by Bulgarians as Unification Day. Okay. Uh, and it's celebrated on the 6th of September every year. Yay. Nice. Eastern Romania and Bulgaria now back into Bulgaria. So you don't have to worry about Eastern Romania anymore. It's going to stay as Bulgaria for now. So Bulgaria is semi-unified. They've got a, a big day to celebrate, but they've still got their eyes on the Macedonian area to the south. Macedonian Thrace are the two bits. That's the bit that they wanted. That's their like, they yeah, that's promised, also, yeah, absolutely. Hmm. So, that, so they're sort of halfway there, but if they got Macedonia, then you're back to the San Stefano version of Bulgaria. So they're like, yeah, that sounds good. But the reunified Bulgaria is still a problem. You remember the great powers didn't want a big Bulgaria. That was the whole point of dividing it in the first place. Austria-Hungary, particularly Greece and Serbia, all hate the idea of this big, this big powerful nation in the middle of the Balkans. Russia, weirdly, who have been previously quite helpful to Bulgaria, also are annoyed because Bulgaria actually reunified without asking Russia first. So Russia actually withdraws all its military officers and the Bulgarian army is left with not many leaders, which was tricky because then Serbia, uh, neighbours to the west, attack. They declare war on Bulgaria on 14th of November 1885. So why is Serbia doing that, given that they know that the global powers might not want that? Well, no, the global powers don't want a big Bulgaria either. If anything, the, the great powers like the Balkan nations fighting each other because that keeps them A, weak, B, as buffer between the right. great powers. So okay. it's like, let them fight. And then if they take too much land or if they overstep, then we, we can step in. And, you don't want a new great power. Right, exactly. <laughs> so Serbia declares war. The Bulgarians are outnumbered two to one on the battlefield. They were largely in the wrong place at the start. One infantry med- regiment had to march 95 kilometers in 32 hours. 95 kilometers in how many hours? 32 hours. I mean, that's pretty much going without stopping, isn't it? Right, so they've, they've legged it 100k, basically, to have a fight. And, astonishingly, Bulgaria wins. Oh, really? So the Serbians take about 6,800 casualties. Had they scrapped their wooden cannons at this point? I think they'd probably, because this is part of their modernization. Their militarization oh. was part of modernization. So they've got better kit. Metal cannons. Yeah, they're okay. uh, really radical stuff, yeah. you might say. <laughs> have we thought of metal for these things? It's the wooden swords that were the real problem. <laughs> take that, you... <laughs> Bruise, I bruised him terribly, Captain. <laughs> so the Serbs lose, the uh, Bulgarians win. Uh, side note for the literary inclined, the, so this Serbian war is the setting for the play Arms and the Man by George Bernard Shaw. No way, okay. So then obviously Bulgaria's like, oh, this is good. We've reunified. We've beaten the Serbs. We're feeling pretty good about life. We're going to proclaim ourselves independent, which is, makes sense. So finally, on the 5th of October, 1908, the Declaration of Independence is proclaimed by Prince Ferdinand of Bulgaria. Mm. Uh, he is then no longer prince because he's now a, a czar. He's a czar. Hazar. Hazar. Hazar! 
Here's an interesting thing, though. This is how he proclaims the independence. He says, I proclaim in the name of God Almighty, Bulgaria, united upon 6th of September 1885, as an independent kingdom. So far, so good. Together with my people, I profoundly believe that this act will meet the approval of the great powers. Oh. So even in your declaration of independence, you're like going, that's I hope all that's right. okay. <laughs> wow, that's amazing, isn't right? it? The that's, power that those people had. To sit there and do your, in, even within your own mm. independence declaration going, uh, if that's all right with you guys. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and that is all right with them. They actually recognise, by the spring of 1909, they've recognised Bulgaria as an independent nation. Hurrah! Bulgaria, Bulgaria is officially an independent country of its own. Can, so, I, can I ask another question about these great powers? Yeah, of course. <laughs> so are they families? Are they no, royals? They're empires, really, more than countries. Right, but so it's the leaders of these? Well, it would depend. So the so would Russians they... would have a czar. The okay. British would have the royal family, but actually it's parliament running it. It's the government. Right, right so they would send their representatives, right, to argue yeah, the stuff out. The you're not going to have four kings and a czar no, sat around no, the table. No, no, you're, you're talking about diplomats. You're talking about governments. Now, those governments will vary between the, okay. the states, but you know, some will be more leaning towards Russian czar approach. Right. Or you could have a government that's parliamentary, but really when I'm talking about the powers, I'm talking about the country as represented by the government, whichever gotcha. form it may take. Okay, doke. So things are looking good for Bulgaria. They've mm. annexed the garden next door, essentially. They've seen off the neighbours on the other side when they tried to complain. They've got metal guns. And they're feeling pretty good about life, mm. um, which, needless to say, cannot last. Uh. So this is all good for Bulgaria, but the Ottoman Empire in the meantime, is really falling apart. They now start a war with Italy in mm. Libya, and just everything's going wrong over there, basically. Uh, so seeing an opportunity, the Balkan nations as a whole, so we're talking about Greece, we're talking about Serbia, we're talking Bulgaria, they go, oh, those Ottomans are looking a little bit pasty right now. What do you think, guys? So they sign a bunch of treaties with each other. Uh, this includes, in 1912, Serbia and Bulgaria. They settle their differences and sign an alliance. Serbia signed an alliance with Montenegro. Bulgaria did an alliance with Greece. And altogether, they formed da, 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 the Balkan League. The Balkan League. The Balkan League. All right, cool. Right? So what do you do when you got a league? Uh, you have a tournament. No, you have a war, which is like a tournament, only bigger oh. and bloodier. Okay. So it is now the first Balkan War. Spoilers in the name, aren't you? Wait, uh, so they're, but I thought they had alliances. Yeah, so they're attacking the Ottomans. The Balkans, ah. the Balkan League go, yes, we're the Balkan League. Let's kick the Ottomans out of this bit of Europe. Cool. Okay. So the, this is quite good. The first people in the Balkan League to declare war on the Ottomans is the Montenegro. Tiny little Montenegro. Tiny Montenegro. So on the 25th of September 1912, they go, right, we're at war with you Ottomans. Bulgaria, Serbia and Greece declare war on the Ottomans on the 17th of October, which means for nearly a month, Montenegro Just was Montenegro. at war on its own. Okay, they're Bul coming, don't worry. It's, they're coming. We they know they're like, coming. Yep. Guys. This <laughs> league thing we were talking about. Guys. <laughs> because yeah. I, I, the Ottomans were falling apart, but I think they could have taken Montenegro on their own. <laughs> oh, no. So of the, the league, Bulgaria was probably the, well, was definitely the most powerful military. Uh, they got a big army, well-trained, Obviously, they've beaten the Serbs, so you know they're doing well. They mobilise uh, nearly 600,000 men. Oh, that's a lot of men. Yeah. That's a lot of men. Greece have joined in. Uh, they're not famed for their military prowess. I had to bring in this quote because I'm not sure whether it's hilarious or just racist. Uh, this is from a British consular dispatch from 1910. Quote, If there is war, we shall probably see that the only thing Greek officers can do, besides talking, is to run away. 
Oh. Yeah, a bit racist. Uh, but the point being, they didn't have a strong army, but what they did have was a navy. So it's just trash talk. That was really bad, wasn't it? Yeah. And that's that's behind closed doors. I saw in the room, they're like, oh, lovely to see you, Stephanopoulos. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but they had a navy, and the navy meant that they could stop Ottomans landing troops to help with the fight. Right. So that was a really critical contribution. So all in all, the Balkan League managed to field about 850,000 men. Yeah. Uh, and the Ottomans had a lot more in their empire, but not there. Can I just say, this was what, 120 years ago? Yeah. That's nothing, is it? 120 years? It's not not a huge or not. Things were different. What's going to happen in another 120 years? Right. Mm. Aliens and <laughs> The alien travel. wars. The alien wars will be ready. <laughs> well, learn from this. So the Ottomans have got more troops in general, but they can't get them there is the, the long and the short of it. So at the start, actually, the Balkan League have much bigger numbers because they're in the area, unsurprisingly. And the Ottomans, as I said, are kind of falling apart. They have a lot of internal strife. And one of the consequences of that is under the Sultan Abdul Hamid II, the Ottoman army was forbidden to engage in war games or manoeuvres because he was afraid it might be the cover for a coup. Oh, wow. So, so they basically, weren't he wouldn't let the army practice in case they overthrew him. Because it wasn't really practice, it was actually them attacking him. Exactly. Wow. To give you some idea of how disrupted this place was as an organisation, between 1908 and 1911, so that's three years, the office of Navy Minister in the Ottoman Empire changed hands nine times. Oh, wow. So basically, everything's a bit of a mess. And how does we, it get to that after all that long period of time and empire building? Empires to, rise and empires fall, my friend. Do, yeah. So, unsurprisingly, the Balkan League do really well from the opening offensive. They march into Macedonia and Thrace. Uh, there's a really decisive battle uh, at a place called Adrianople or Adrianapoli. I don't know how to pronounce it. And that ended in 1913, 26th of March 1913, with the capture of the town by the Bulgarian Second Army and the Serbian Second Army. Now, in an act of what I would describe as dramatic foreshadowing, the Bulgarian censor cut any references to Serbians being there in the telegrams of their foreign correspondents. So back in Bulgaria, it was a purely Bulgarian victory. Oh, okay. (laughs) Mother, I write to you from the battlefront here in... Unspecified military zone. We stand victorious, having fought ferociously with my brothers in the... Other Bulgarian units. I must observe that the... Other Bulgarian units. Are tremendous fighters. They have not abandoned their posts, but fought like tigers. Perhaps I was wrong when I expressed my doubts about fighting alongside... Other Bulgarian units. Now that the war is finally at an end, I will return home. But first, I have promised to visit... Other Bulgarian regions. With the... Bulgarian soldiers. Who have done both Bulgaria and... Bulgaria. A great service. Your son, Haristo. P.S. The food parcel arrived. As ever, your home cooking is... Delicious and entirely edible. Just, uh, just on that then, 1913, so we're talking about battles. What does a battle look like in those days? This, this is redcoats still. No, right? 1913, no. you're just pre-World War One. you're looking at... What are they wearing? Cannons like and rifles. People and, on horses still? Uh, there'll be horses, yeah. Still cannon though, right? It's not... We haven't got any of the yeah, tanks and cannons. stuff like that Tanks yet. haven't been invented, It's not no. modern warfare in, in no, the classical it's the, sense. I guess World War One did a lot for progressing warfare, didn't it? But mm. we... You know, aeroplanes exist at this time, as we know, but not necessarily... Only just. You won't have an RAF at this point, or an Air Force, rather. But you have you have guns, you have... It's, it's... I'm just wondering if this is still the time of, you know, people lining up on fields and then charging and... Yeah, I think I think it is because that's pretty much what happened at the beginning of World War One, wasn't it? They just sort of trooped through 
through. It wasn't a lot of strategy. I guess I just think of the trenches and bombardment. and It didn't start in the trenches, though, did it? It kind of ground into the trenches, but we'll come to that. So, okay. uh, no spoilers, although I think I'm just trying to get. I'm trying to visualise, Pete. Just yeah, trying you've visual, got, I'm trying to be there. I want to be on the field. I would call it... A, Not for <laughs> real. <laughs> I want to be on the field as a press. Yeah, press. <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, Adrian Apple goes, is, is taken. The Ottomans are like, oh, that's it. We can't fight anymore. And they, it's time for another treaty. Yay. Oh, of course, yeah. Uh, this or is a poem. A, it's one of the two. It's, it's always going to be a treaty or a poem. <laughs> I have to warn you. Um, and this was signed on the 30th of May. It's called, it's, it was signed in London. You'll never guess what they called it. The Treaty of London. They did call it the Treaty of London. Well done. And guess who were there? Londoners. And? Cockneys. And? Uh, tourists. So all right, it was a war between the Balkan states and the Ottomans. Who's going to show up to your treaty conversations? The Le- Balkan League. And? The Ottomans. And? I don't the great know. powers. Oh, all of the great powers. All of the great powers are going to show okay. up. doesn't matter right. that they weren't involved. They have oh, to come okay. to every treaty because they don't want anything happening. It <sighs> was hard work. Oh, man, come on. Oh, it's, Those the, tourists must have been well confused. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, right, we have the Treaty of London, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and the, the great powers are there. Uh, funnily enough, actually, the only great power that wasn't there was the Ottomans. They were dealing with their own problems. Uh, mm. And the, the net result of this is basically the Ottoman lost all of its European territory, basically, to wow. be divided amongst the Balkan League. Okay. Hurrah! Quick and easy. Balkan Leagues, high fives all round. Yeah, it's 1913. We've beaten the Ottomans. What could possibly go wrong? Mm. So there is just one thing, though. The Treaty of London doesn't actually specify exactly how the territory is going to be divided amongst the Balkan nations. Right. They just say, and then you guys get that. Right. Let us know how that Off goes. Off you go. Uh, and in particular, both Serbia and Bulgaria now stake a claim to Macedonia. This must have been intentional, right? On the great powers part. Well, let's ask Eric. Er- Eric? <laughs> <laughs> Eric, help us. <laughs> no, Eric's going to explain to us uh, what this means. All right, cool. I, I have him here for my uh, explaining the, the why and the significance of things. I'll just tell you what happened. I'm just confused why you have an Eric puppet that you're using. Like, I could just listen to him. You don't have to do the puppet. <laughs> I've spent hours making this. What are you talking about? Oh. All right, well, all right, here we go. In that process, a lot of things were cans kicked down the road. There were a lot of very, very big issues. They're like, well, we'll figure that out later. And this seems like another case of that where they're they're making this treaty and like, yeah, we don't really know exactly where we want the border between Serbia and Bulgaria and Macedonia to be. And that's a pretty you know, tricky situation. So like, we'll just not specify it. We'll figure it out later. That was also a bad idea. <laughs> like, yeah, yeah. Specificity matters. Policy matters. Getting things in writing matters. It's like you wouldn't uh, enter a business agreement or sign a mortgage or something where a bunch of things were like, yeah, and we'll figure that out on the line. Like, who knows? Like, no, that's a, that's a terrible idea. <laughs> I... I... Feel I have done that in the past. Well, yeah, I, I would probably do it as well, but that's why I'm not the a leading diplomat. I'll work I suppose. it out later. It's fine. <laughs> so yes, that's a terrible idea, says Eric. Okay. So can it go wrong because it was a terrible idea? Well, if it could have not gone wrong, Bulgaria weren't interested because they seemed determined at this point hmm. to make it go wrong. Uh, they they embark on a campaign that I can only describe as trying to annoy every single one of their neighbors. <laughs> uh, so obviously Excellent. the Ottomans to the south and east of Bulgaria, they were annoyed because they just lost a war sure. with Bulgaria. And their land. Absolutely. The Serbians to the west were annoyed because uh, Bulgaria is claiming Macedonia, Macedonia, which they also want. 
That's what I said. How <laughs> yeah, we try that again? The Serbians to the west were annoyed by Bulgarians' claims to Macedonia. What they want. Yes. So, uh, in actual fact, Serbia's already signed another treaty with Greece promising to work together in case Bulgaria attacks. Okay. To the north of Bulgaria, we've got Romania. They haven't done much so far, but actually Bulgaria is, in, as part of this whole treaty palaver, mm. uh, Bulgaria is supposed to give a town called Silistra in a place called Dobruja to Romania, and they just say, no, we're not going to do that. So Romania like, what? No, you're supposed to give us that. Shut up. We're, we're going to invade you. The, the, they're calmed down by the Russians, who, mm. who say, I want to arbitrate. So then Bulgaria annoys the Russians as well, a nation that seems to be trying to support them, wow. and whose invasion of the Ottomans basically led them to be independent, ultimately. What happened was, Tsar Nicholas sends a personal message to the kings of Bulgaria and Serbia, Serbia to try and say, well, we sort this out. The Bulgarians just act like absolute... They reply to the Russians with so many conditions that it's obvious they don't want to right. talk. They just want... They're going to have the war. So Russia not only cancels their offer to act as an arbitrator, but the foreign minister says to the new Bulgarian prime minister, Do not expect anything from us and forget the existence of any of our agreements from 1902 until present. That is a big two fingers up to the Bulgarians. Why 1902? What happened before that? Uh, I'm not sure. I, I Those suspect, must have been the good ones that they didn't want to. I think, yeah, anything before that was, uh, pro, well, yeah, I don't know what happened in 1902, but in any event, that is a big tearing up of, of treaties and agreements, isn't it? It is, Forget yeah. it. You can almost see him sweeping them off the table, can't you? Well, no, I, these. I was picturing like in a shredder. Like really slow one. He's like yeah. looking him in the eye. And he's put too many pages together and it's got stuck. He's like, he's there for really awkward five minutes. You may go. <laughs> yeah. So uh, Bulgaria hear that and they watch the yeah. and they go, whatever, man, we're a young nation. But I think the Bulgarians just basically become teenage nation. They wrote a poem about it. Right? Yeah. So uh, having annoyed everyone in every direction diplomatically, uh, they've got a couple of options. They could either try and play it cool a bit or <laughs> wreck <not>. it. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Now, let's imagine you're Saar Ferdinand of Bulgaria. Yep. What do you fancy? Uh, not. Not. Correct. In June 1913, the Bulgarian High Command, under the direct command of Tsar Ferdinand, so direct orders, who doesn't, he doesn't tell his own government that he's going to do this. He says to the army, I want you to attack the Serbians and the Greeks. He doesn't even declare war. They just attack. Wow. So that's quite controversial. The government's like, uh, what? He's a cocky guy. <laughs> he is a cocky guy. Uh, and with absolutely nothing to back that up, because this highly controversial move is not a great success. Well, clearly he thought that they'd done the majority of the legwork during their battle against the Ottomans, right? He must feel like we rolled a six there, that we can keep rolling a six. Yeah, I think there's an element of that. Certainly he, he personally thought... I want to be the czar of a big country. They've they've won a lot of things lately, right. really. So feeling pretty confident. You um, look back in history and there's all sorts of Napoleons and such that were just like, I'm going to attack them and then I'm going to attack them and I'm just going to keep going. Like, I could be that guy. I could be, I could be Alexander the Great. Yeah, he, he cannot though, it right. turns out. So the idea was they'd take as much of Macedonia and Thrace as they could from the Greeks and the Serbians before the great powers arrive and say, stop doing that so that they could say, they'll probably get pushed back a bit but they'll have a lot of it so they basically commit all of their military to the south and the west to just rush into macedonia thrace and take as much as they can which they were promised 
many which they still want they were back to san stefano basically it does not go well the first attacks on the serbs and the greeks are not particularly effective they sustain heavy losses against the greeks and they find themselves not retreating but they're dug in and they're holding desperately then the greek forces start advancing eventually they start pushing the bulgarians back until they're 76 kilometers south of sofia which they're which they just about managed to hold on to so all of their armies in the south and west the greeks and the serbs are fighting them there this this casts me in mind of um, a, a guy who's first time at in Las Vegas, and he's gone to a casino and he's like hit the jackpot first, and he's like, well, then I I'm on a roll. I'm just going to yeah, keep going. I, I, I've got it. I'm on a streak. And the only way this is going to end is him continuing to keep losing until he like puts up the deed to his house and loses that, and then ends up getting beaten up round in the alley behind the casino. Yeah. Plus, after he's won his first streak and he's putting money on, mm. and people are going, you shouldn't do that. He's shouting, shut your face. I know what I'm doing. You're an idiot. <laughs> in their faces at the same time, and probably throwing a glass of drink in their face. Yeah. That's kind of what they're doing right All now. Right. So uh, it will not surprise you to learn that the neighbours see something of an opportunity in this weakened, rather weakened and busy mm. Bulgarian army. So Romania go, oh, well, we're going to have a bit of this. They declare war on Bulgaria on the 10th of July. They start attacking from the north. Yeah, because Bulgaria is down in the south at the moment. Exactly. Right. So they go, <laughs> they push towards Sofia. Everyone's headed for Sofia, I guess. But it's a curiously unwarlike war in that they, they release a diplomatic circular that says this. Romania does not intend either to subjugate the polity, so take over the government, nor defeat the army of Bulgaria. Okay, what does it want? Well, I, it remains a bit of a mystery to me. I think they just mean, if you don't fight us, we'll just take all this, thank you very much, thanks for the <laughs> land. But uh, I just thought it was a really curious way to go about attacking okay. someone. We don't want to beat your army, we just want to invade you. So the, the Romanians reasonably soon find themselves seven miles north of Sofia. Okay, that's not far. No, indeed. Side interesting note, you talked about what the battles were like. So the Romanian Air Force actually did photo reconnaissance over Sofia. So they had an Air Force at this point? Uh, I had a, a plane, I guess. <laughs> Probably an Air Force might be overstating it. <laughs> a but. man strapped to a kite. Yeah, but yeah. Sofia is the first capital city in the world to be overflown by enemy aircraft. No way! Yeah. That's really cool fact, right? So that helps, hopefully helps you orient where you are in time mm. as well. So now you've got Romanians coming down from the north. You've got Greeks and Serbians coming up from the south. The sea is obviously on the east, but to, to the south and the southeast, you've got your Ottomans. So guess what they do? Oh, they come in. They and go, yeah, let's in. have a bit of that. So they go, let's is a free for all. So they attack as well in 1913 on the 20th of July. They cross the line. They invade Bulgaria as well. This is a slightly one-sided affair because what I read was that the Bulgarian force had between 200 and 250,000 men uh, and the Bulgarians had uh, 4,000 men in the area. Oof. Uh, they withdrew. Yeah, as you would. Or <laughs> you die. would, wouldn't you? It's like... They needed more Montenegro blood. Or, or a them. load of Spartans. That's the only thing that I think could have helped. But yeah, a bit of Montenegrin spirit might have helped them. I don't know. <laughs> this is Bulgaria. <laughs> so as you can guess, it's not working out well for Bulgaria. They're basically losing land in every single direction. The sea is the only thing that's not attacking them. How's this working out for your man in charge? He isn't doing great, but he's still in charge. So I guess he's surviving. But the long and the short of it is Second Balkan War, which was the Balkan. The first Balkan War was Balkans versus Ottomans. Yeah. Second Balkan War was Balkan versus Balkan. Yeah, because when I think of the Balkan War, I don't think of the Balkans gathering together to fight somebody else. Oh, you see, that was the first one. You mm. see, it's the sequel you're thinking of. Uh, yeah. And yeah, so they lose. In, in short, they lose big time. So guess what? Another treaty. Yep. Is that um, how you get out of a, lo- a losing situation? 
Uh, well, it's just what happens once you've lost, I think, when you, or at least when you throw in the towel. So how come it doesn't just get taken over? Like, how come so people just went, well, well you can do that, but there's practical, there's practical consideration. Do you want to do that? Or you also want to win with as minimum cost as possible. And if you just destroyed everything, you would incentivize people to fight against you. I mean, arguably, that's what happened in Japan in World War II. They fought sort of so bitterly that it ended mm. up being an absolute... Brutal. So it's less about taking the land as it is just making your point. It's about winning and taking, getting something. Taking be the that. spoils, And maybe. usually, yeah. So normally in a treaty discussion, it's something like, I want this bit of land that I've pushed into because it is a port or mm. because it has great fertility. So I'll get all my grain for my cities. Yep. But I don't want this bit. So I'm going to give you that back because actually just administering an area that's just a mountain with nothing that I want on it and is full of angry Bulgarians is more trouble than it's worth. Fine. So we're going to take these poetry books and we're going to go home. Absolutely. We just we are just here for the literary criticism. <laughs> so um, what happens is they ha- they go to Bucharest and they negotiate a treaty. Can you guess what that treaty is called? Uh, this is going to be a trick and it's not going to be called the Treaty of Bucharest. No, it is called the Treaty of Bucharest. Oh. <laughs> I won't drag that out. <laughs> uh, so basically... Bits of Macedonia go See to Serbia. See how I don't trust you, Pete. I understand that. It's mm, you've entirely got deserved. <laughs> <laughs> this is why I don't attend treaty negotiations, because no one trusts me. I'm like, what? What? You can have the Macedonian land. It's fine. Just wait until Eric's got you on his podcast and he's got a little puppet with beady eyes on it. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think I have a lot to offer Eric, to be honest with you. He was a fountain of knowledge, whereas I'm just a clown. <laughs> so, right, it's back around the table with the great powers, obviously. Yeah. Um, bits of Macedonia go to Serbia. Bits of Macedonia go to Greece. The Ottomans get a bunch of Thrace back. Albania is created. We've invented a new country, guys. Oh, really? Is yeah. that where that appears? Yeah. Uh, Romania get Dobruja, which is this bit that they were arguing about earlier. There's lots of fertile land there. Bulgaria have a little bit still left. A smidge of Macedonia, a tweak of Thrace, but really they're in a bad way at the end oh, of 1913. honestly. And it only cost them 1.3 billion francs. Uh, and they've lost Dobruja, which actually presided them at that time with 20% of their grain. So oh. that's a bit of a blow. But they are well stocked with mountains. So they like slapping the heck out of their leader by now going, like, why did you do that? Well, who should we blame for this? That is exactly the question that I asked Eric. So let's see what Eric has to say. From my perspective, you can never forgive Tsar Ferdinand for that. It was colossally stupid. Starting this this uh, second Balkan war, it, it should have been incredibly obvious what was going to happen. You know, it was no secret that this would be the golden opportunity for everyone and their mother to to get what's theirs from the Bulgarians. And to me, it's it's a Tsar Ferdinand had this this complex about him that he just envisioned himself as this grand leader of some great power, and he was determined to uh, you know see that vision come to fruition at all costs. And the costs were rather enormous. I mean, we've all been there. I know. I've always wanted to be the massive leader of a gigantic nation right. and invaded several of my neighbours, <laughs> yeah. mostly unsuccessfully. Yeah. That's why they own most of your furniture now well, and yeah, you sit I mean, on the floor. I, uh, You're not allowed in your front room? My IKEA section has been <laughs> decimated. But I, I did want to add something else that we talked about, uh, Eric and I. Uh, that's It's easy to blame Tsar Ferdinand, but you know, all this didn't happen in a vacuum. So uh, let's see what else Eric uh, mentioned. 
Bulgaria plays its role, you know, in a lot of these things, but a lot of it is also just the fact that the great powers really do not care a lick about the people of the Balkans and their interests or anything about them. And, you know, it's one of these things that I'm always very defensive and sore about the stereotypes that people have about the Balkans. Like, oh, you know, ancient hatreds and oh, the people there are just so violent and they have too much history, all this BS. You know, so many of the modern conflicts in the Balkans, you can trace a direct line to the great powers stomping in and drawing a bunch of borders and making a bunch of decisions purely based on what they want with zero regard for what the locals want. And, you know, it's, it's a bit like, you know, look at a lot of Africa, a lot of, a lot of these countries where they have colonial drawn borders and they, and they have issues. It's hard to blame that country. You know, how, how dare you blame Afghanistan because half the, the Pashtuns are over on the Pakistan side of the border and this creates all kinds of problems. It, like, it doesn't make sense because the British drew that border. Like, it was their idea. And so it's one of those things that, like, the, so much of this is just the great powers feeling like they're in charge of the world and these silly little people in the Balkans, nobody cares much about them or what they want. And, uh, you know, we're just going to do as we please. And uh, that, that led to all these problems. And then people from those great power states turn around decades later and say, look, at what's wrong with these silly people in the Balkans? Why can't they, uh, why can't they just chill out? So I, I just thought it was worth it. It's, it's easy to point at Zalford. I mean, it's right as well to point at Zalford and But yeah, this doesn't happen in a vacuum. All of this comes from Bulgarian people, people who identify as Bulgarian, being separated by random lines on a map drawn by someone who doesn't actually care what those people have to say about it. It sort of reminds me of the Greek gods looking down. Uh, sort of sort moving, of moving chess pieces. pieces. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So uh, basically, it's the end of 1913. Bulgaria is in a bit of a mess, clearly. But, you know, it's the end of 1913. It's not like there's any gigantic war around the corner, is right. it? Yeah, it all gets, we're heading towards the 20s. So everything is going to be great. So, uh, I've penciled in an intermission here, but I don't know how, how you're feeling. I thought I would like an intermission. Yeah, okay. My butt is quite sore. Yeah, I thought it's because it's long and quite intense. Oh, it's some Bulgarian snacks. Nice. Did you go to a Bulgarian store? Did you or know where these... there was a Bulgarian store? No. At the end of my road. <laughs> For real? <laughs> I was like, Bulgarian stores. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> no, look at these. All right. Right, they are called Lotto Naturale Simacho. I think it says. I don't know what the C is. This is my friend, Bulgarian beer. Right, what is this called, this beer? This is Kamenitsa. Kamenitsa. Coming right at you, Kamenitsa. Okay. That's quite... Earthy taste. Yeah, it's... It started out sweet and then went malty. I like that a lot. Yeah? Kamenitsa pan. I have uh, snacks here. So the first one is Lotto Naturale Simacho which is not how you pronounce it. Uh, and on the back, they are a corn snack with a butter taste. You can see his little tiger man. Yeah, there is a little tiger holding what does look, not look like the snack within the packet. He looks very much stolen from the tiger and the little boy thing. He does very much look like What's a Calvin and Hobbes Calvin tiger. Calvin and Hobbes. A bit fatter. Like buff. Yeah. Buff <laughs> Hobbes. Hobbes went to the gym. <laughs> is Hobbes the boy or is Calvin Oh, the boy? I'm not sure. Calvin must be the boy. Let's say that. Thank you very much, sir. Right, so it looks like... Oh, I'm not sure what it looks like. Well, it's supposed to be curly butter, I think. Like it's curled from a... You know, like when you get like one of those butter knife things oh, and you it curl it. Oh, like butter. Well, yeah, it's butter flavoured. <laughs> oh. <laughs> it just tastes like I've licked some butter. Oh, it's cheesy, right? Is it? 
Yeah, it's like a very weak buttery <laughs> texture wise. I would have buttery goods Cheeto. In this. Like a Cheeto. It did Cheeto ish. That is, I'm going to categorize that as not for me. Hmm. It's by a company called Best Foods. So I think you're wrong, mate, because it is the best of the <laughs> foods. Right. This next one, you can guess what this one flavor is. It's called Lotto Mega Nuts. Mega Nuts. That's probably some sort of nut. I smell the snack. I can't smell snack. You, know you can definitely smell. smell this. Oh, it smells barbecue. <laughs> no, it smells of nuts. Does it? Yeah. No, oh, it's super yeah, no, nutty. I smell barbecue. Okay, well, that's fine. Right. I smell something though, which means it must be quite powerful. It's really strong. <laughs> yeah, it really smells like nuts. Right, so these are long, thin, finger-like. They, they look like what's-its that have been yeah. dusted off. Mm. Hazelnuts and peanuts. If you like things dissolving in your mouth, this could be for you. He looks like... <laughs> Alvin and the Chipmunks. Basically, it's a little knockoff cartoon character. I was thinking Chip and Dale. Oh, yeah. They're still Chipmunks, aren't they? I've got to say that is also going in the not-for-me bucket. The beer is excellent, I would say. Mm, Yeah. And that is my focus, so I'm happy with that. All right. Tell me some more depressing stuff about Bulgaria. All right, let's get you back on track. So, the first Balkanmore is finished. Bulgaria did well. The second war is finished. Bulgaria did not do well. Yeah. They are in a bit of a state. They're smaller than they were, and they're pretty unhappy with life. Licking their wounds. Licking their wounds. So, time for more war. <laughs> yeah. um, the great powers have tried to maintain their own sense of the balance of things by having lots of alliances and agreements and treaties. And that's been okay until the 28th of June, 1914, when in Sarajevo, an archduke called Franz Ferdinand mm-hmm. is having a lovely drive through the streets, uh, very much spoiled by a young Yugoslav nationalist called Gavrilo Princip. Right, why? He jumps on the footboard, shoots Ferdinand and his wife Sophie from point-blank range, killing them both. Yeah, that, that would that would put a downer on your day. Yeah. Now, this triggers a cascade of events. There's all these interlocking treaties and alliances, which are way too complicated to want to go into right now. But basically, World War I begins. Uh, uh, wow. Okay, so that is the catalyst for all these countries all just fighting each other now. Yes, because country A goes, oh, well, now we're annoyed that you did that, so we're going to invade you, which means it triggers a treaty with right. country C, and then country C has a protection agreement with country D. Country D join in, well, country F have a c- agreement with the first country that if these guys join in, then they're going to jump in right, as well. Right, and right. suddenly you've got World War One. Where's the great powers in all this? Why aren't they saying, hey, calm it down? Well, this is the great powers. The two, the, the, oh. This treaty creates... World War One is basically two groups of what were the great powers. You've got the central powers, which are Austria, Hungary, Germany, and later the Ottoman Empire, mm-hmm. and the allied powers, which are France, Britain, Russia, and which are in Serbia, but they're not one of the great powers, obviously. So central powers, Austria, Hungary, Germany, allied powers, France, Britain, Russia, plus Serbia. Right. Bulgaria, it will astonish you to learn, have actually had enough of war by this stage. Uh, so they go, you know what, we're going to sit this one out. So at the start of World War One, they stay neutral. Okay. So this is good for them, obviously, because they're not fighting in this horrible war. But they, it also makes them quite attractive because both the both sides, the central powers and the allied powers, are like this is these guys are in quite a useful position. They're right in the middle of things. So they 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 kind of want the the Bulgarians to be friends. The Allies are a bit nervous because one of the things that happened before World War One was that Bulgaria went to France for a big loan. Because remember, they were brutally uh, mm. wiped out financially by the previous war. And the French told them to bugger off, basically. So they had gone then to the Germans, to a, the Disconto Gesellschaft Bank in 1914, and they gave them a 120 million franc loan. What? So the Allies, everyone wants Bulgaria to be on their side eventually, but they're like, oh dear, that's a, that's a bit of a backward step for the Allies. And the Germans are like, maha. 
we've owed, we've lent you some money, you're probably going to join us. That's another great power, isn't it? The banks. Yeah, and absolutely. The power that they were. Like we talk about the politics and we talk about this sort of stuff, but the, the people that are running the banks, they now have uh, a, a, a large control or controlling hand and over Bulgaria. Well, without wishing to go down a massive rabbit hole, there was actually a theory at the beginning of or pre-World War One, really, which was that World War One couldn't happen because everyone owed everyone else so much money, mm. nobody could afford to go to war. Oh, really? That theory was wrong. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> because World War One very much happened. Interestingly, this German bank loan was quite controversial even within Bulgaria. Apparently, they went to Parliament to accept this loan. Mm. There was, a, there was a, I would say, a debate. Fights, actual fist fights broke out. Someone threw a book at the Prime Minister and hit him on the head with it. Book of poetry. <laughs> and it was so chaotic. They weren't even sure whether they'd voted for it or not. And the authorities just claimed, yeah, there was a show of hands and we voted it through. But it was such a chaotic scene that, that nobody was really sure. Amazing. I want to throw a book at someone. That in sounds a fun thing yeah, to do, right? I'd certainly throw a book at several people in Parliament. Mm. So the Allies are a bit nervous because they're like, oh dear, we perhaps should have helped them out with that loan because now they're a bit nudging up to the Germans. But actually they're a bit more interested in Romania at the moment because Romanians have oil and the Bulgarians don't. So the Allies are looking for oh, really? to win over the Romanians. And it's this classic complicated situation. So you can't necessarily cozy up to the Romanians who have been annoyed by the Bulgarians and the Bulgarians because they don't like each other. So the Ottomans then enter the war. As I said, they, they come in a bit later. Uh, they join the Central Powers. That's the Germans and Austria-Hungary. And that actually increases the strategic importance of Bulgaria because now you've got the Ottomans and the Russians on the same side. Bulgaria is in the middle, which means they could either be blocking them from coming together or helping them come together. So that their, their strategic importance really increases. So uh, it's good news for the Bulgarians. They're more strategically interested, but they're still hanging out. They don't want to enter the, the war particularly. In May 1915, so this is a whole year has come on and they're still not in it. Italy join in. Weirdly, uh, Italy joined the Allies. Uh, and I say that's weird because they actually had an alliance with the Central Pact. Hours. Uh, and yet when they threw in their, their ticket, mm. <laughs> I guess, ticket for a mission, they joined in with the Allies. Wow, I guess they were promised something. Something good, yeah. It all comes down to what you're promised. So this even this again adds to how important Bulgaria is due to its location. So I guess I would phrase it as Bulgaria is very hot, very now, very well. Bulgaria, quick question. Oh, sure, yeah. It's Vasilia from Hot Stuff. Oh, I love your show. <laughs> You're looking great. What are you wearing tonight? Oh, well, tonight I'm wearing Macedonia. Well, it looks really good on you. I know. So, like, your hot property at the moment uh, voted world's most desirable country. <laughs> well, I don't know about that, if, if that's what they're saying. <laughs> they sure are. Well. <laughs> well, look, any comment on some rumours that you, you have been seeing a lot of Germany recently? Oh, I couldn't possibly comment. Germany and I, were good friends and, oh. you know, well, never say never, but right now. So, available then <laughs> and open to offers. <laughs> I'm sure our readers will be delighted to hear this. Oh, I'm sure. <laughs> well, look, thank you for your time, Bulgaria. Like the rest of the world, we will be watching you with interest. Okay, thank you, Vasily. Thank you. <laughs> me. Me? What about me? <laughs> go away. Interview me. Oh. I've still got it. So, go away, will you? But I'm still here. W watch me dance. Oh, Ottomans, you are disgusting. Go away, you old man. But your listeners will want to know. Go away, will you? It's filthy. But I'm ready for my close-up. No, oh, gross. <laughs> <laughs> So 
So the importance of Bulgaria's location is so significant that it's, it's become known as the Bulgarian summer of 1915, which is when basically everyone's courting the Bulgarians to join their really? side in the war. And the Allies are like, hi, would you like some things? And Bulgaria say, yes, I'd like some things. I'd like Macedonia. Oh, and really? They're still pushing for the whole... They still want Macedonia. This wow. does not change through the whole period. And the Allies are like, hmm, the thing about Macedonia is it's currently yeah. held by Serbia. <laughs> and Serbia are on our side. So yeah. this is a really tricky thing to ask. So they can't at the, at the beginning. But eventually they go, do you know what? You can have Macedonia. And Bulgaria go, that's interesting. And then Serbia say, wait, what? They hadn't consulted with <laughs> oh, them at haven't. all. And they just went, do you want some of Macedonia then? Come on, this is totally <laughs> worth it. Um, okay. This does not help their credibility in terms of Bulgaria's like, mm, do you want an ally who just chops a bit of you off without even consulting you? Because in the grand scheme of things, Bulgaria is more of a Serbia than a great power, right? So right. if your allies are willing to chop a bit of your land off and hand it over to someone else. Imagine being Serbia. Friends like that, right? <laughs> Cheers, guys. Um, but in a way, what really matters is who's going to win. There's a, All the agreements in the world don't help you if the team you're on loses and you don't get anything. I guess. So Bulgaria particularly clearly doesn't want to end up on the losing side again. And so they watch for a while, but eventually they, they kind of have to pick a side. It's one of those one of those wars you just can't avoid getting involved in. Sure. Uh, Roll up your sleeves. Yeah. And, and essentially for Bulgaria, it came down to, I want Macedonia. You guys have it, but want to keep it. So if I'm on your side, what are the chances, allies? You're just going to let Serbia keep it. Germany is saying, well, what I'll do is I'll crush Serbia, take Serbia for myself, and you can have Macedonia and we'll all win happily and live happily ever after. So really, the only one in a position to genuinely offer up Macedonia is the is the central powers. So they say, OK, we'll join with you guys. And in this period, things are looking pretty good. Not amazingly good, but pretty good for the central powers. So hmm. good chance of them winning and they can give you Macedonia. Boom. Let's join the central powers, they say. So uh, 6th of September 1915, Bulgaria formalises its affiliation with the central powers. In secret, though. I feel like Bulgaria has just been, been in rehab for his gambling addiction from that massive breakdown he had at Vegas. And now some of his mates come along and gone, hey. Oh, got, we're just having a game. We're having a game. It's just, just, it's just oh, a simple game. It's just, it's a simple, amongst friends, just pop, a come few, along. just buy a few chips. And like, I don't know, right. you know I've got a problem with this. But we've got a system. <laughs> okay so after secretly joining the central powers uh bulgaria declare on september the 22nd 1915 a general mobilization so they mobilize their army and they they describe this as a state of armed neutrality okay so i would like it sounds to, like a romania situation well of, we're going to attack you but we're not yes very much so i would describe it as similar to if your neighbor installed a dance floor and then said oh, i'm not having any parties yeah like, yeah <laughs> not 100 percent. just like the look that. of it <laughs> so by the beginning of october they've mobilized six hundred and sixteen thousand men and that's 12 percent of their population nearly a quarter say, yeah. of the male population they drafted or were like people just Not clear. I think everyone I think drafting was a thing but I wouldn't swear to it at this time we'll have to check that okay hello this is the voice of the internet Bulgaria used military service to conscript all eligible males aged 20 years or over for all other military purposes conscription lasted a minimum of five years after the enforced military service was complete Bulgarian soldiers joined a reserve fighting force who could be called upon whenever their country needed them thank you so armed neutrality, uh, not really a thing. Less than a month later, they declare war on Serbia and the Bulgarian army invade Serbia. Right. So this starts off relatively successful. They open the route between Austria-Hungary and the Ottomans. 
Um, so the Ottomans can attack, obviously. Uh, the Kingdom of Serbia was occupied by the armies of the Central Power by December 1915. Things are going pretty well. The Allies are pushed back to Salonika. In 1916, Romania enters the war on the Allies' side. Yeah. This guy's not getting on. Doesn't really help much. The Bulgarians and the Central Powers push the Romanians north, past Bucharest. Things are going pretty well. How are the Bulgarians so strong all of a sudden? Well, they do have some help, clearly. <laughs> no, but still. The, well, it's good to have Germany on your side in these matters. Yeah, I guess so. And so things are going quite well. But then it's not so much there's a massive reverse. It's just everything just grinds to a halt. This is the sort of the transition from people driving around and attacking and running across fields to just trenches and mud and nothing's really everything's dragging on no one's really moving it's a war of attrition supplies are becoming short just not just on the front but at home as well nobody's got enough food nobody's got enough equipment the bulgarians particularly have been at war for a decade or more this is an exhausting experience for them so this is the world war one that we're all familiar with the, okay. the grind we're there now are we the death the blood the hunger, the rats. This is a horrible, horrible period. And uh, obviously, if it's the World War One we're familiar with, that means poetry. It sure does. Uh, so I've got one for you here by a guy called Dimcho Debelyanov. As a young poet in 1906, he began to send poetry to literary magazines and they were well received. Nice. A little bit of talent. Good for him. He moved from job to job in the next six years. Uh, he couldn't really settle down. He was a junior clerk for the Central Meteorological Station and he was a freelance journalist. Mm. Bit of a wanderer. He's a poetic spirit, I suppose. Uh, he joins the army in 1912 to fight in the Balkan Wars. In 1914, he's discharged from the army. Gets a job in a post office. No, he doesn't get a job in a post office. He gets a post in an office. <laughs> <laughs> he super hates working in an office. I don't know why he would uh, be like that, but yeah. he hates this office job so much. He rejoins the army in oh. 1916, which is the year that he is killed. Okay. So he writes this poem that we're about to hear called Foreboding. And this is a poem I've selected because for me, if anything sums up World War I, the, the exhaustion, the misery, this poem is it. Behind me, the years run away from me one by one. And I run onwards, ever onwards, and up above, the sun burns the dismal desert my life has become while I pursue the specter of love. No crown of laurels encircles my brow. On my cheeks, sweat mixes with blood now. My eyes mist over as with a fog of pain, while my soul seeks a happier terrain. I am overcome with terror and fear. The time is nigh when I must grasp the edge of a bottomless pit, but my fingers have lost their strength and grip, and with a scream I am thrown back into the shadow-filled night. Wow. That was beautifully read. Yeah, she did an absolutely lovely job. Thank you again, Antoinette, for your uh, marvellous help. That poem is hard reading. It's, it's oh. so powerful that I don't really want to talk about it. Yeah. <laughs> But for me, that really sums up how everyone's feeling. It's it's despair. It's you've grabbed onto something and you've let go because you can't hold on anymore. And that's what's happening. 80,000 Bulgarians are dead. 150,000 Bulgarians are wounded. In Bulgaria itself, everything's falling apart from the inside. Socialist workers and agrarians are conducting anti-war campaigns. Soldiers committees are forming in army units. December 1917, 10,000 people gather in Sofia demanding an end to the war. They want to overthrow the Bulgarian government. In 1918, unrests, riots, a women's revolt against food and clothing shortage. Everything is falling apart. 
And then it gets worse. September 1918, the Allies break through on the Macedonian front during the Vardar Offensive. The Bulgarians are now just deserting. They're just picking up and going, I'm not doing this anymore. I'm going home. They sometimes quite aggressively. The 25th of September, a, bun- a bunch of Bulgarian deserters come to the city of Kustendil. And they loot the city. Then they converge on a railway centre in Radomir in Bulgaria, 30 miles from Sofia. And the leaders of the Bulgarian Agrarian National Union, which is a political organisation, they take control of the troops. This is the beginnings of essentially a revolution about to happen. Mm. And in all of this chaos and in all of this disaster, Tsar Ferdinand has to sue for peace. It's it's over. So on the 29th of September 1918, Bulgaria surrenders. They've lost another war. Time for another treaty. Treaty okay. of Nui. Nui, I'm not sure how to pronounce it. N-E-U-I-L-L-Y. Nui. Uh, signed on November 1919. And Bulgaria uh, clearly lost uh, the war and obviously lost territory. They were actually the first, I think, um, central power to surrender. They lose their Aegean coastline to Greece. They lose its Macedonian territory to Yugoslavia, which is now invented, mm. um, which also has its own problems. Uh, and they have to give Dobruja back to the Romanians again. So once again, they've they've pushed out. They've got this land that they conceive of as the Bulgaria that they know and love, and they've lost it all again. So they've gone from the start of the decade, a freshly minted country, so aspirational. They've won territory from the Ottoman oppressor, and they've gone in, within a decade to an exhausted, wrung-out, war-weary, just destroyed nation. And I asked Eric kind of to summarise how, how it was for Bulgaria in this time. Looking at Bulgaria after the First World War, it's like we can, it's hard for us to even wrap our heads around the extent to which the country was just in shambles. At the end of the First World War, virtually every country that was involved, whether they were a winner or a loser, came out just utterly exhausted, devastated, in in an awful state. And Bulgaria had just fought, you know, two back to back wars that had resulted in just a catastrophic loss and this deep sense of the loss of the San Stefano territories. You know, a lot of the most common metaphor was like the lost limb, that an arm or a leg had been lobbed off. And that's what Macedonia was. And so you, you come out of this, you know, profound sense of loss and oh, we lost. And then it seems for a little while that you're going to get it back, that it's all, you know, you're going to be redeemed, that we're going to get the territories back, that uh, it's all going to work out in the end. And then it doesn't. And as I recall, Bulgaria lost in the the First World War one of the highest percentages of its population. So the proportion of deaths, even in the short time Bulgaria was in the war, was exceptionally high. A lot of the fighting was on Bulgarian territory. And just, yeah, the the country was in just absolute shambles. And you, you read the accounts of the soldiers that turned around and basically went to go overthrow the government. And they, they didn't have shoes, they didn't have equipment. And when the war ended, they, they basically just turned around and started walking to Sofia, ready to overthrow everything, just, just sick of it all. And so, yeah, it's, it's hard to wrap your head around, really, just how bad things were. So is there any, any thought to the alternate timeline of that they had joined the Allies rather than joining the Central Powers? I suppose if they joined the Allies, would they have won? I think you'd end up still in a bicker with Serbia about who owns Macedonia. That's that's this sort of sticking point that's occurred right from the Treaty of San Stefano that we started with right to today was Macedonia is part of Bulgaria and other countries choose to differ. 
Mm. Um, I mean, I was being flippant with my sort of analogy to the gambling thing, but it's kind of, they had a choice, right? It was 50-50. You flip the coin and they could have joined the Allies or they could have joined the Central Powers and they, in hindsight, chose the wrong gamble. Yeah, it was, I, I found myself with, even though obviously I know the outcome of the war, I found myself, because I didn't really know a huge amount about the Bulgarian contribution to it, there was a sense of they, they, they were neutral for a while because my biggest fear was that they just sort of pitch into another war sort of headlong, but they start out and they're like, well, no, we, we we don't want to be part of another yeah. war. We've had enough of that. And you think, oh, you've, done it. you've done it, guys. You've done They're it. You're going to make it. it. And then you think, well, if you wait long enough and it's really certain who's going to win and then you pick your side, well, then bare minimum, you don't lose. Hmm. And, they, and they still managed to get it wrong. And it was Oof. weirdly heartbreaking. So that is why this has been an absolutely pivotal decade in Bulgarian history. In theory, I should be stopping. But I'm not because that is way too big a downer to be stopping on. So I'm just going to give you a taster of what's about to happen. Okay. Uh, I mean, it doesn't get hugely better, but it definitely gets better. So the Bulgarians are clearly not happy. <laughs> I just know we've got World War II around the corner. Well, yeah, it's uh, long term. <laughs> oh, it's no. not great. But Tsar Ferdinand is, is not going to last long, put it that way. They have elections in 1920. So it's actually still within our period. March 1920, the agrarians. They're uh, a movement that is quite complicated, but basically they're not socialists, but there are sort of of communal elements mm. and it's about <clears throat> building a country on your agricultural rather than your industrial sector that's a whole start of a whole other episode but it's it's essentially <laughs> seeds of optimism and hope i'm going to say and the reason i'm leading into this is that the agrarians had a sort of collectivist aspect socialism is also around obviously there's the social collectives and the committees and the point of all this is there's a there's a bit of a shift or i think there's a bit of a shift from when we started, it was this mother Bulgaria, the nation. And now there's this sense that actually I can't, I don't love my nation because look what, look what mm, it's done. Yeah. And, but what I do love is the man next to me, the side, the, the people around me. Oh, that's wonderful. So this, this movement from I love my country and I will bleed for my country to I love my fellow man and I will bleed for my fellow man. And that's encapsulated in a, a poem by a chap called Christo Smirnensky. Mm-hmm. Uh, he was born 1898 in Macedonia, of course. Um, <laughs> he was 16 when World War I started. He enrolled as a cadet, but uh, he actually quit when he saw the suppression of soldiers revolting at the end of World War I. He was published in the Communist Party's literary magazine, Red Laughter. Um, what it's called. absolute side splitter i would imagine <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. um he was he took part in demonstrations and rallies for amnesty for convicted soldiers he wanted to improve the condition of workers so he's one of these this generation of people who are like i'm sick of that old stuff that old style nationalism my country i want a new and different world uh he inspired people to rise up against social injustice i guess uh sadly because of course this is a bulgarian story and it has to end sadly he dies in 1923 from tuberculosis but he wrote a poem called a youth and i'd just like you to to hear that because uh, there's certainly seeds of a more optimistic bulgaria in it all right I do not know why I was born into this world. I do not ask why I shall die. When I was born, the delicate May morn unfurled its flowery freshness to the eye. I greeted youthful spring, I greeted vernal youth, and opened eager eyes to see how life would come to me, beautiful and smooth amid a joyous rhapsody. But no, I wasn't hailed by spring with merry sounds and showers of fragrant petals. Instead, a villain made me with a pack of hounds to put my hands and feet in fetters. 
Through clouds of fiendish greed and wicked spite, a sinister shadow crept near. A gold-armored monster reared his height, dripping with blood and human tears. In the falling gloom loomed faces pale and lean. I heard laments and plaintive strains, and threats to repay for pain and vileness mean. I also heard the clatter of chains. I recognized my brothers who were kept enslaved by the ungodly god of gold. I saw the spirit of man abased, depraved, and crucified a thousandfold. I cried out in iron words and wrathful indignation. May this be the dire day of doom, the day of ruin and of new creation. May fires blaze in decisive gloom. May this, our earth, begin a fiery feast. May the thunder roll and glow. The slaves will unite to fight the monstrous beast and hurricanes of souls will blow. I'll raise the banner of brotherhood unfurled and I will keep it flying high and then I'll know why I've come into the world. I'll also know for what to die. So for me, this poem in many ways tells, tells that whole story we just went through. I thought I was going to have a great life and now I'm in this muddy, horrible war. He sees his brothers who are kept enslaved by the ungodly god of gold. All this, these powers that be all about material goods. And actually my brothers are being enslaved by not a country, but this concept of this prophet. And then this still a sense of fighting. It's, they can't get away from that. Bulgarians love it, I guess. But fighting for each other. I'll fight and die for my brothers not for my country at this point mm. and that to me is an interesting progression that really f f tells the tale of the decade in a lot of ways so maybe there's hope after all how old was he when he wrote that uh he was 22 here so he would have been 20 23 ish or okay. thereabouts yeah 23 i was probably scribbling on the back of a toilet door and some sort of graffiti yeah i was up to similar not very impressive feats of <laughs> Trivia. Literature. <laughs> <laughs> Amazing. Um, Pete, I mean, what a fantastic episode. That was your magnum opus. It was uh, fantastically researched. There was a tremendous amount of history there <laughs> to get through. <laughs> Value for money was there, right? <laughs> I was gripped from, from start to end. I really wasn't sure where this was going to go. I thought maybe you'd pick a novel or something that was written. I, I didn't think that we would go quite down the, the war line no, that I we did. the entire history of Bulgaria. Entire, <laughs> yeah, well, like, as you said right at the very start, this is the critical period. So you were absolutely right to do it. Um, I think the Dursalator did you a good one. I think so too. That was, uh, I mean, normally I'm scratching about trying to find something. <laughs> this time it was a, more of a tidal wave of information coming yeah. towards me. And I'm thinking, how do I make a podcast out of all this? Uh, I do have to stop and say thank you so much to so many Bulgarians actually who helped. The guys at Our Bulgaria in Reddit uh, and to Annetta who read and recorded those poems for us so beautifully. She was lovely, so supportive. Eric Halsey, do check out his Bulgarian History podcast because he has done super in-depth history. If you're interested in Bulgarian history, consider this a little taster uh, and check out Eric's podcast. We'll put the link in our uh, episode description. Yeah, absolutely, we will. And thanks to Bulgaria, the country, this was a rough decade, to be sure. Um, <laughs> but I would like to leave with something more positive, and uh, that's a message from the splendid Eric Halsey. Check out the podcast and... 
come check out Bulgaria. It's, it's uh, people don't think about it very much. A lot of people just look at it as a place for you know cheap skiing or to get drunk at the beach or something like that. But it's it's got a lot more history, a lot more excellent wine and culture and beautiful nature. It's got a lot more to offer, and you know it's a, a place I love dearly and have made my home. And yeah, I think it gets a bad rap, and I'm always excited for people to come and experience uh, all that it has to offer. So I encourage people when it's safe, when they can, to to come visit. It's that time, Peter. It is. <laughs> oh, it's that weird mix of nerves and excitement that comes when cracking open the Dursalator. It's it's the the brief moment of possibility. <laughs> literally anything, literally anywhere, and literally yeah. anywhere could come up. That's right. Right. I'm going to lift the wooden li- lid off it mm. and uh, cr- hand crank it. Um, okay, the Dursalator is primed. Your country is... Yeah. Mauritania. Oh, The brilliant. vengeance that is Mauritania. <laughs> and your time period is... Yeah. 500 to 600 CE. Okay. And your topic is... Mm-hmm. Funnily enough... Yeah. Humor. Oh, I see what you did there. Uh, you see, Funnily enough. That was a bit of a gag. Humor. Got off to a flying start. Okay, so we've gone from the darkest depths of the First World War <laughs> to humor in 500s. I'm, that's... The like, 500s in Mauritania. Yes. The okay. classic. I mean, it's well known as the golden age of comedy. <laughs> I mean, you think of all the great classics. I mean, all the great double acts that came out of Oof. Mauritania in 500 to 600. I can barely name them. You think of all those Ben Stiller movies that feature Mauritania <laughs> in the 500s. I mean, most most of uh, the Will Ferrell works are remakes <laughs> of ancient Mauritanian comedy yeah. classics. Yeah, it's Step Brothers. It's, it's exactly it's a remake of the Mauritanian of, 500C uh, classic. Okay. <laughs> well, look, you know, I can tell you one thing. It's going to be funny. Oh, no pressure, I'm eh? So looking forward to how hilarious it's going to be. <laughs> There's definitely no pressure, but uh, I will be bringing my laughometer. Okay, so, well, that's our show for this week. And what a show it was. Peter, you're the best. Thanks for listening, everyone. Um, if you'd like to get in touch about any of the things that Peter's talked about on this show, uh, or just to say hello, or to tell us where we've been wrong on any of our other episodes, you can reach out to us on social media or through our website at hhepodcast.com, or you can email us at hhepodcast at gmail.com. You know, we'd really love to hear from you. And you never know, you might end up featured on a future show. And if you want to do that, one way to definitely feature on a future episode is to rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts. Your recommendations are really important. They help us bring the show to new listeners and grow the podcast so you can get more of it. More podcast. Uh, if you're on TikTok, Instagram, Facebook, or Twitter, you can also find us on at HHE Podcast. And if, if you subscribe to those, you'll get an alert every time we post our one-minute animated HHE Bites. Yeah, they're fun. We're going to be back again... Uh, next week, me and Pete, um, not with an episode of HHE, but with an episode of The Verdict. Uh, with the uh, irascible, the erudite Paul Dursley. He is irascible. You're right. <laughs> <laughs>
Uh, yeah, so check out our after show episode of The Verdict. That'll be coming soon. And I can't wait to talk about that one because there's a lot to unpick from this episode. Oh, there really is, isn't there? But if you can't wait that long, uh, we do have a back catalogue of episodes. You can find it in your podcast app, YouTube, or at the website, hhepodcast.com. All right. So a huge thank you to Peter for this week's episode and to all of the contributors from Bulgaria. And that's it. I guess all that's left to say is... You've been listening to... History happened everywhere. Uh, okay, so this is another poem by Christos Milanensky. Uh, it's called The Tale of Honour. It was an honour I had not expected, to be sure. The devil asked me in and offered me his best liqueur. A candle gilt his profile, puffing smoke rings in a haze with moist eyes Mephistopheles upon me fixed gaze. His mien, though tinged with autumn grief, was proud and cheerful too. He cried, In vino veritas, I shall be frank with you. I can no longer bear the yoke of cunning and deceit. Here's to my otherworldly warmth and worldly woes we meet. Long, long ago I came to earth and for a joke, you see, took worldly truth to be my life, but she cuckolded me. My honour to avenge, I vowed in jealousy and pain, I trampled others' honour down, but mine I've not regained. I thought in exploits to excel, I died in many a fray, though worthy causes I upheld, no one has came my way. Then, in the street, one day I showed a sign I had prepared. Here is a man without a scrap of honour, it declared. But strangely, no one looked askance. With interest I was viewed, and everywhere men doffed their hats. No honour, good for you! A gentleman embraced me. Brother, you two, man alive. Two pretty ladies said, Tomorrow, come to tea at five. Amazing, such attention rare, all did to me devote. Kings, ministers, court ladies fair, fond letters to me wrote. Behold me rolling now in gold, a man of place and pride, a thief, a shameless rogue, I know, but honoured far and wide. He paused, our glasses he refilled, and raised a toast with glee. As blowing rings of smoke... He fixed his bright green eyes on me. I love that one. That's really good. <laughs> that was really good. Nice one, man. It just didn't fit anywhere, but I wanted to put it in. <laughs> no, that's, it does fit. It goes right at the end. <laughs>